Hey everyone, welcome to TaxCast with Chelsea, where I give you a small dose of interesting tax news and discuss commonly asked tax questions. This week I've highlighted audit plans from the IRS, estate planning discussion, and new energy tax credits coming from Congress. First, the IRS announced their 2023 audit plan on October 24th, and I will review a few of their compliance and enforcement section audits. Also, Roger McCowan discusses basic farm and ranch estate planning for 2022 and 2023. His discussion actually is broadly relevant to anyone who just owns property and wants to understand a little bit more about the estate planning process. Lastly, the Inflation Reduction Act added billions of new tax credits for energy efficient purchases. Let's highlight the tax credits and what will be to taxpayers available starting with 2022. So the Office of Audit released their annual audit plan for fiscal year 2023, which communicates the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, also known as TIGTA, audit priorities to the Congress, to IRS, and to other interested parties. The activities described in this audit plan connect to the goals of the IRS's mission to administer programs. According to the report, The fiscal year 2023 annual audit plan includes 146 new and in-process audits. But don't worry, I'm not going to read you all of their priorities, but rather just focus on a few points from the Department of Compliance Enforcement section. So let's just start with this section. They do list 36 objectives, but I will only review four, the ones that I find the most interesting. The first audit goal is computation of the tax gap. They want to assess the IRS's process for developing the tax gap estimates. Remember that the IRS defines the tax gap as the difference between the true tax liability for a given year and the amount that is paid on time. It is comprised of the non-filing gap, the underreporting gap, and the underpayment or remittance gap. If you try to find the most recent estimates in determined dollars, then don't be surprised when you find that their analysis is lacking. The fact is that this report released on October of 2022 gives us only estimates for the tax years 2014 to 2016, and then it only gives projections for 2017 through 2019 tax years. Seeing as we are almost through 2022, this is definitely not a current or relevant analysis of the tax gap, which is why the IRS should review their process in determining estimated tax liabilities for Congress, as it drives a lot of their collection efforts. Considering these estimates are for six to eight years ago, it would be worthwhile to understand what their current methodology is. In my view, using their estimates is only a fractional, if not incomplete way to calculate a tax gap and probably would be better off just telling us the tax gap is in the billions or in the trillions rather than put a real number to the unknown. The relevancy to today's post-COVID lockdown economy is what is lacking the most. For quick numbers, their recent report said there is a $428 billion tax gap, where $306 billion comes from individual taxes and $87 billion from employment taxes. So that's the majority of the tax gap that they're estimating. Typically, individuals who have business income and other income not reported on their individual tax return inside the tax gap. And then they said that simply... Typical W-2 filers are found to be the most compliant with a 99% reporting rate. Another audit focus is the federal employee non-filers. 
They want to determine whether the IRS is effectively addressing federal employees who fail to file their tax returns. In 2021, according to the Office of Personnel Management, there were over 1.4 million federal employees. It's not known how many of these federal employees are not filing their tax returns, but they don't list the statistical significance in the lack of compliance. So I think this is a check-the-box compliance factor that that since federal employees are required to file their tax returns and report income like all tax repayers, they want to see that. It seems like this could be resolved with a simple exception report by adding a question on the tax return and matching this with Social Security wages in filings from the federal government. The IRS already does this and sends letters when income tax returns don't match Social Security records, maybe through an error from the taxpayer when they filed their tax return. There are privacy laws that prevent the use of shared information amongst government organizations, which makes it a challenge for the IRS to find this non-compliance. I'd compare this issue to a September 2022 TICTA report about the failed reliance on, quote, self-certifications from third parties who were delinquent on federal taxes and yet still were awarded contracts and grants from the federal government anyway. If they could put a self-certification question on the federal tax return, then it seems reasonable to replace it with the presidential election campaign question where you can give $3 to the fund and maybe go ahead and replace it with, are you a federal employee with the U.S. government? Seems like a simple solution. Another issue they are focusing on is the Ghost Employer Initiative. They wanted to review the IRS's efforts to bring ghost employers into compliance with employment tax reporting and payment requirements through collaboration with the Small Business and Self-Employment Division. Leah Colbert is currently the director of this division, which that division touches more than 57 million small business owners and self-employed taxpayers. The businesses inside of this division are considered small, small business division, um, if they have under $10 million of assets. Not a lot of information from the IRS defining what a ghost employer is, but some believe that this is a focus relating to the rampant fraud around the PPP loans and reporting employee information. The last goal is the auditing of high-income taxpayers. They want to determine whether the IRS is meeting the Department of Treasury's established goal of auditing a minimum of 8% of all high-income individual returns filed each year. This last audit goal might be able to help high-income individual returns brace themselves for increased audits, perhaps close one out of 10 or close to one out of 10 audits could happen amongst high-income individuals. But then the question is, who does the IRS consider high-income individuals? The former commissioner for the Small Business and Self-Employment Division, Eric Hilton, wrote on December 3rd of 2020, when he addressed compliance work done by his department saying that the IRS has always considered high-income non-filers a priority. But earlier in 2020, we shifted a considerable amount of resources, especially in our collection activities, to address the problem more aggressively. We identified and contacted taxpayers who made more than $100,000 and had not filed a tax return before 2019 to ensure they understood their obligation to file and pay income taxes. So based on that logic, should we consider anyone making over $100,000 high income for audit purposes? Not really sure, but they did say 
or the IRS has a closer representation of what they might consider high income earners, which is found under the tax stats of individual high income tax returns, where those who make more than $200,000 are listed as high income taxpayers in that report. Also, in May of 2022, the IRS posted an update on audits and discussed the status of the high income, high wealth audits. They said that the IRS actually groups taxpayers for applying audit resources by total positive income, called TPI. TPI is the sum of all positive amounts shown for the various sources of income reported on the individual tax return and therefore excludes losses. So by using TPI, higher income taxpayers that have losses, such as losses from flow-through entities, are not grouped in a lower AGI income class. Even with declining resources, audit coverage is greater in the larger TPI income grouping than coverage from like EITC returns that fall in a lower TPI income range. They also say that the average time to complete these high income, high wealth audits ranges from 61 hours to 251 hours per return. Further down in their report, they also said that the IRS cannot simply shift examination resources from a single issue correspondence audit to more complex higher income audits because of the employee experience skill set. A GS-8 tax examiner is not trained to conduct a high income, high wealth taxpayer audit. In order to increase parity of numbers of taxpayers audited, the IRS must reallocate high graded resources from certain issues to high income, high wealth taxpayer returns. Furthermore, the rate of attrition is significantly higher among these experienced examiners It's mainly because a lot of the higher experience examiners are closer to retirement. It's also noted that a revenue agent who could qualify to audit one of these high wealth returns must be trained on the job for at least two to three years in order to have the sufficient experience. So it is clear regarding these type of audits that they are more complex, which require more man hours and thus higher skilled IRS employees to conduct these high income audits. Moving over to Roderick McCowan's discussion of estate planning that he posted in September of 2022 on his blog. Roger McCowan is a professor of agricultural law and taxation at Washburn University School of Law in Topeka, Kansas. While highly accomplished in his field, Roger is a great communicator and one of my favorite tax speakers for tax continuing education. His blog, concisely explains estate planning to any taxpayer wondering about leaving their property to selected beneficiaries. The title of his post was called Farm and Ranch Estate Planning in 2022 and 2023. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, TCJA, has made estate planning much easier for most farm and ranch families. Much easier, that is, with respect to avoiding the federal estate tax. Indeed, under the TCJA, the exemption equivalent of the unified credit, which is the basic exclusion amount, was doubled from its prior level of $5 million and then indexed for inflation. So for deaths in 2022, the state exclusion is $12.06 million per decedent. When that is combined with the unlimited marital deduction and the ability to, quote, port over the unused exclusion, if any, at the death of the first spouse to the surviving spouse, very few estates will incur federal estate taxes. Indeed, according to the IRS, there were 
3,441 federal estate tax returns filed in 2020, and only 1,275 of those represented returns where federal estate tax was due. The TCJA also retains the basis step-up rule. That means that property that is included in the decedent's estate at death for tax purposes gets an income tax basis in the hands of the recipient equal to the property's fair market value at the date of death. But with the slim chance that the federal estate tax will apply, should estate planning be ignored? What are the basic estate planning strategies for 2022 and 2023? And for the life of TCJA through 2025? Looking at married couples and singles with wealth less than $12.06 million. Most people will be in this zone. For these individuals, the possibility and fear of estate tax is largely irrelevant, but there is a continual need for guidance of estate planners. The estate planning focus for these individuals should be on basic estate planning matters. Those basic matters include income tax basis planning, utilizing strategies to cause inclusion of property in the taxable estate so that it gets a basis step up at death. Existing plans should also focus on avoiding common errors and looking to modify outdated language in existing wills and trusts. For example, many estate plans utilize the formula clause language. That language divides assets upon the death of the first spouse, regardless of whether it's the husband or the wife, between a credit shelter trust, which utilizes the remaining federal estate tax exemption amount, and a marital trust, which qualifies for the unlimited federal estate tax marital deduction. The intended result of the language is to cause that trust value to be taxed in the first spouse's estate, where it will be covered by the exemption and create a life estate in the credit shelter trust property for the surviving spouse that will bypass the surviving spouse's estate upon death. As for the marital trust assets, tax on those assets is postponed if it's taxed at all, until the surviving spouse dies. But here's the rub. As noted above, the TCJA increase in the exemption could cause an existing formula clause to, quote, overfund the credit shelter trust with up to full federal exemption amount of $12.06 million. This formula could potentially result in a smaller bequest for the benefit of the surviving spouse to the marital trust than it was intended, or even no bequest for the surviving spouse at all. It all depends on the value of assets that the couple holds. The point is, couples should review any existing formula clauses in their current estate plans to ensure they are still appropriate given the increase in the federal exemption amount. It may be necessary to have an existing will or trust redrafted to account for the change in the law and utilize language that allows for flexibility in planning. In addition, for some people, divorce planning protection is necessary. Also, a determination will need to be made as to whether asset control is necessary as well as creditor protection. Likewise, a consideration may need to be made of income tax benefits of family entities to shift income, subject to the family partnership rules of Internal Revenue Code Section 704E, and qualify deductions to the entity. The entity may have created for estate and gift tax discount purposes, but now could provide income tax benefits. In any event, Family entities, such as Family Limited Partnerships, FLPs, and Limited Liability Companies, LLCs, will continue to be valuable estate planning tools for many married couples in this wealth range. 
Most persons in this zone will likely fare better by not making gifts and retaining the ability to achieve a basis step up at death for their heirs. That means income tax basis planning is far more important for most people. Also, consideration should be made to determine whether insurance is still necessary to fund any potential estate tax liability. It also may be possible to recast insurance to fund state death taxes. Presently, there are 11 states that retain an estate tax and five states have an inheritance tax. One state, Maryland, has both. And serve investment and retirement needs, minimize current income taxes, and otherwise provide liquidity at death. Note that in those states that have either an inheritance tax or an estate tax, or both, the exemption from tax is typically much lower than the federal exemption. This fact requires additional planning for decedents in those states. Other estate planning points for moderate wealth individuals include, for life insurance, it's probably not a good idea to cancel the policy before having that move professionally evaluated. That's particularly the case for trust-owned life insurance. For pension-owned life insurance, for those persons that are safely below the exemption, adverse tax consequences can be avoided. Evaluate irrevocable trusts and consider the possibility of decanting. On that decanting issue, you can see Roger's blog on his website. For durable powers of attorney, examine the document to see whether there are caps on gifted amounts, like the annual exclusion is now $16,000, and make sure to not have inflation adjusting references to the annual exclusion. Also note the present interest annual exclusion for the federal gift tax purposes is projected to be $17,000 per donee for gifts made in 2023. For qualified personal resident trusts, QPRTs that were created when the estate tax exemption was only $2 million, the conventional advice was to deed the house from the QPRT to the children or a remainder trust, which might have been a grantor trust with a written lease agreement in favor of the parent or donor who would continue to live in the house. Now, it may be desired to have the home included in the estate for basis step-up purposes and the elimination of gain on sale. While FLPs and LLCs may have been created to deal with an estate tax value inclusion issue, it may not be wise to simply dismantle them because estate tax is no longer a problem for the client. Indeed, it may be a good idea to actually cause inclusion of the FLP interest into the estate. This can be accomplished by revising the partnership or operating agreement and having a parent document control over the FLP. Then the Internal Revenue Code Section 754 election can be made, which can allow heirs to get a basis at step up. There are other planning issues. While income tax basis planning, using techniques to cause inclusion of asset value in the estate at death, is now of primary importance for most people, asset protection may also be a major concern. Prenuptial agreements have become more common in recent decades. And marital trusts are also used to ultimately pass assets to the heirs of the first spouse to die, who may not be the surviving spouse's heirs at the death of the surviving spouse. A beneficiary-controlled trust has also become a popular estate planning tool. This allows assets to pass to the beneficiary in the trust rather than outright. The beneficiary can have a limited withdrawal right over principal and direct the disposition of the assets at death while simultaneously 
achieving creditor protection. In some states, such as Nebraska, the beneficiary can be sole trustee without impairing creditor protection. Powers of attorney for both financial and health care remain a crucial part of any estate plan. For a farm family, the financial power of attorney should be in addition to the FSA Form 211 and give the designated agent the authority to deal with any financial-related matter that the principal otherwise could. Impacts to inflation. The rampant inflation in the economy caused by numerous bad political choices over the past 20 months means that the inflation adjustment for the basic exclusion amount is projected to be 12920000 per decedent for deaths starting in 2023. That is a significant increase, and it is likely that the basic exclusion amount will be close to $14 million range in 2025, which is the last year of the TCJA. On the flip side, the same disastrous political choices have caused the stock market to drop significantly. So not only are retirement savings being lost, but the remaining dollars are also being devalued by inflation. However, for the the few with significant wealth that would potentially be subjected to federal estate tax at death, it is imperative to not waste the higher exemption. This is particularly true given that the IRS has taken the position that gifts made during a year when the unified credit is high will not be clawed back into the donor's estate at death if the credit is lower at that time. In conclusion, while estate planning has been made easier by the TCJA, that doesn't mean it is no longer necessary. Reviewing existing plans with an estate planning professional is important. Also, the TCJA is only temporary. The estate and gift tax provisions expire at the end of 2025. When that happens, the exemption reverts to what it was under prior law and then adjusted for inflation. For deaths in 2026, the federal estate and gift tax exemption is estimated to be somewhere between $7 and $8 million. While those numbers are still high enough to cover the vast majority of people, they are a far cry from the present $12.06 million right now. One thing is for sure, a great deal of wealth is going to transfer in the coming decades. One estimate is that approximately $30 trillion in asset value will transfer over the next 30 to 40 years. That's about a trillion per year over that time frame. A chunk of that will involve farm and ranch real estate, livestock, equipment, and other personal property. Lastly, let's review some of the new energy credits passed in August of 2022. It is clear that the Inflation Reduction Act is trying to change some consumer behavior and industry by providing a long list and somewhat complex requirements for new energy tax credits. Here are some new opportunities that taxpayers may be able to cash in on. Prior to the Inflation Reduction Act's passage, There was a lifetime limit on non-business energy property credits, which is extended now through 2022, and then it's released. Most of my clients who own homes have maxed this credit out within the last 15 years. However, starting in 2023, there will be new tax credits, like a $1,200 credit per taxpayer per year for qualified energy-efficient improvements installed during that year. It is calculated based off a percentage, and you're able to receive up to $1,200. That calculation is 30%. There's also a $150 credit for home energy audits. Also, eligible property now can include other residential property that is not your main residence. So think 
your residential rentals or second homes. Other annual limits now are $600 for windows and skylights, $250 for any exterior door, $500 is allowed for the year on doors, $2,000 annual limit for amounts for specified heat pumps, water heaters, biomass stove, and boilers. There's also an extension for solar electric, solar hot water heater, small wind energy, and other types of energy. Those credits are limited to cost by 30% through 2022 and 2032. And then it decreases to 26% in 2033 and 22% in 2034. Contractors can get a efficient home credit from between $500 and $5,000. Then we can also look at the new vehicle credits for electric vehicles in the United States. They require a seven kilowatt battery or hydrogen fuel. The max credit you can get is $7,500. The final assembly must be in the U.S. if placed in service after August 16th of 2022. Also, battery-making materials sourced from Canada, Mexico, will make a taxpayer eligible for the full credit. Presently, most electric vehicles, the minerals are sourced from China. There's also some modified AGI limits of $300,000 if you're married, so you don't get a credit if you make over that, married filing jointly, or $150,000 single for the year of purchase or the preceding year. There is also no credit if the MSRP exceeds $55,000 or $80,000 for trucks. There will be a used clean vehicle credit, but the vehicle has to be placed in service after 2022, and there are still limitations based off your modified adjusted gross income. Starting in 2024, the credit will only be applied to vehicles made with parts and components sourced from U.S., Canada, or Mexico or with which the U.S. has a free trade agreement. Credits is reduced if it doesn't meet all the requirements. It will require a lot of documentation from the manufacturer in order to receive the full credit. Currently, in the United States, there are 72 EV models, and right now, 100% of those will not qualify for the full credit according to the sourcing requirements. Do you think Congress will be successful in driving consumers to the EV market through tax credits? Consider that those who can afford the EVs are limited by income. Also, vehicle manufacturers will need to comply with sourcing requirements for taxpayers to get the full credit. Then there are the MSRP vehicle caps. Then there is also the ongoing inflation of materials and costs that seems to wipe away any benefit of the credit. These hurdles are summed up by the fact that Ford and General Motors released their price increases in August of this year of between $6,000 and $8,500, already citing that, quote, significant material costs increase in other factors, end quote. I think that we will see those who can buy these electric vehicles will do so regardless of the tax credits. And then there will be those of us who still can't justify the costs against the economic benefit. Thanks again for listening, and you can find today's links in the show notes below from today's podcast. If you like this podcast, then please hit subscribe and add a five-star rating so that other people can listen too. Feel free to connect with me and let me know your ideas for a future TaxCast. cast.